With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. If you have navigated the U.S. health system or advocated for your own health, then you know the frustration of struggling to feel listened to and heard. It was those kinds of experiences that motivated Ivalice Andino to launch Radical Health, a company that combines meaningful community conversations with AI-enabled technology that helps people understand what is going on with their health. I found this conversation really inspiring because unlike so many of our guests who have a five-year plan bulleted out from the jump, Ivalice really felt her way through becoming a CEO. And while she may not have always been clear about the how of building this business, she is now, she has always held tight to her why. Ivalice, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. I am so into you because you are just building something that is so desperately needed and does not exist. And it's one of those things where you're like, how does this not exist? Yeah, I feel the same way. (laughs) Now, I want to start at the beginning, which is that growing up, you thought you'd be a doctor. You wanted to be a doctor. What was motivating you down that path? So this is one of those things that I didn't know what was motivating me until... I was a little older, a lot of therapy later to see it. But I so often the case, (laughs) right? When you can look back and say, oh, that makes sense. I didn't have all the pressure to be a doctor and pay everyone's bills. That wasn't the motivating factor. In fact, my family was very like low key. They were like, just, you know, live your life, love learning. That was one of the priorities that my family instilled. But I grew up in the South Bronx and I grew up with asthma. My mom had asthma. We grew up just seeing a lot of, I don't want to call it chaos because in many ways it was like community and life, but just seeing a lot of traumatic things from, you know, 
car crashes to like just people struggling. And I think um, in many ways and what I uncovered later on, like I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to help people. I wanted to be able to save people. I also wanted to have like the stability and especially the financial stability that I didn't really grow up with. So for me, I've always loved science and I've always loved the magic of the human body, but being a doctor was a way to take care of my mom, take care of my family, my grandmother, and not have to worry about like, do we pay the rent or the light bill this month? What got in the way of you pursuing that? When you're younger, it's like, what do you want to be? And you could be anything. The reality, I think, for Black, Latina women, for Latina women, like the reality of like what paths are kind of easier ones versus which ones are the harder ones. I think that starts to emerge a lot later. I was the first in my family to go to college. So I didn't really have a plan. No one was like, hey, this is what you need to do. Apply here. I just kind of winged it. So I enrolled in like City College locally, like at Lehman College. And then I showed up, they're like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. And they were like, well, does it really work that way? You don't just get to choose. I didn't know how to even like the logistics or the hoops or the just even the path to becoming a doctor, what that looked like. But you did still end up working in medicine. I did. Or in health. In healthcare. Um, in fact, today I work with a ton of doctors. And one of my first like careers, I was actually training physicians and researchers and I think what's interesting in like these conversations is that it sounds so nicely packaged, mm-hmm. but the reality was I went to college and I had to switch. I had to move to Florida. So I didn't even graduate right away from where I, I was going. I had to switch. Then I was a waitress for a really long time and a bartender. And my first like corporate job was actually in, I worked for Anheuser-Busch. I saw that on your LinkedIn. I was like, oh, I haven't heard this as part of the story. Cause you're right. There is a pressure to package it up so that it all makes sense. And some of it, some of it is just life and it happens. It's messy. It's messy. And again, if you had asked me, like I kind of, I gave up, I gave up on the idea. I was like, oh, there's no way I'd be a doctor. In fact, I thought I was going to be a waitress forever. I thought I was going to be a waitress and a bartender forever. I was like, well, you know, the tips are great. I can make this happen. And I really gave up on that dream, on even my passions. These are all stories. I'm telling you all my deep, dark secrets. But I used to work at a restaurant and I actually took the day shift. And what I would do is I would wear business clothes, like put on like slacks and heels to go to my waitressing job that was like from, you know, 10 to six. And just so I could pretend that I had a real job while I was a waitress. Cause I was just like, well, this is it. Like, at least let me just pretend where all my other friends had real jobs. Well, to be clear, being a waitress is a real job. It's just not an upwardly mobile job. Yes. Thank you for that clarification. And when I think about it in hindsight, I think a lot of the reason I'm so successful today at my real job, like today in my grown-up job, really is all attributed to the skills that I learned as a waitress, like the skills that I learned as a bartender, the ability to talk to people, to listen, to hear, to relate to strangers in many ways, to build rapport, to make things happen, like, and the actual like labor, the work ethic of being on your feet and and doing labor. Like I tell everyone now, I'm like, that is, if you don't know what you need to do, like 
please go work in the restaurant industry. That is probably one of the jobs that I think doesn't get enough credit for one, how brilliant it is, how beautiful, and like how it teaches you so much about yourself and about the world around you. Yeah. You and AOC proving that you can take these skills and parlay them into being a member of Congress or a CEO. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads. What did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight. And now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important. And it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th. At 6.30 p.m., we're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the ball is filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer. M&M's for all fun kind. Radical Health was born literally at your dining room table. At my dining room table. <laughs> Again, I'm I'm also an extrovert. So maybe I should add, like, I'm a Scorpio. <laughs> I'm from the Bronx. I'm Puerto Rican. And I'm an extrovert, which just gives me all this, like, verve. So when I got started, I had this idea. I was like, well, healthcare is broken. I don't know what to do. Like, do you? And so I would meet people. And I invited my friends and my neighbors. And then at our dining room table, like we sat down and we would just have conversations. And it was really a space. Um, people came from everywhere. So they were doctors. It was my tia. It was like anyone. And we just talked like, what do you want to see? What's working for you? What's not working in health? But it allowed us to, to talk about the things that weren't working, to also think about what was working and to kind of start creating like collaborations and connections that weren't just like in healthcare or just in education. And then really allowed for like the people to kind of start creating their own solutions. And that's where we got started. There's always sort of this moment where the idea goes from being an idea, I'm a person who has a lot of ideas, to being a thing that is very real like a thing you can sort of see and touch. What was that moment for radical health? I tell everyone, one, come up with a name. Doesn't matter what it is. Just 
pick a name. So there was a moment like where I was like, oh, okay, radical health sounds great. I tell everyone that like to make it tangible is to like one, just say that you are the founder, that you are the CEO, that you are the it, like you are doing this. So for a long time before I had anything, I would just say, I'm the CEO of Radical Health. And I would just practice that. Which I also love because that's you showing up at your waitressing job in business attire. Exactly. Exactly. And saying it, right? Like you have to believe it, right? Like if you're waiting for someone else to believe it, they won't. But like, if you want to start something and take it from an idea to like a real deal thing, you have to believe it first. I started doing these conversations at my table and then it grew. I couldn't fit anyone in my house anymore. So we had to like rent a space. And that was the first time where I was like, oh, oh, this is legit. This is real. I borrowed space, you know, friends who had offices or living. I mean, I just borrowed. I was like, just please let me borrow your space. I'll be in and out. I'll clean. And I'll like bring you a pastry. I love it. I love it so much. Like how many pastelitos does it take to rent out a conference room? Okay. (laughs) How did you raise your first set of money? So the truth is that I couldn't get any funding when I first started. So I thought now I was, you know, a corporation. I had worked in tech. I had healthcare. I lived this. Like nobody can mess with me. I've got this. Uh, And I went to go raise money and I was told crazy things, wild things. I was told, you know, you should add a white man to your team. And I didn't know then that Latinas and black women get 0.01% of all funding. Did not know that. I just, I thought I could do it. So I bootstrapped. And what that means is basically I went out, used my waitressing skills and started selling Radical Health and getting clients. And so our first money came in from the Obama Foundation and the New York City Department of Education. So we managed to snag like, and these are clients. It wasn't a grant. It was like they actually hired us to do this work. And then this year, we were like, all right, we're going to raise some actual investment dollars. One of our first investors came from Unseen Capital, and they are a health equity tech fund founded by a Black first-time fund manager who really believes in founders who are changing the, the healthcare game, especially the health tech game, but doing that from lived experiences and who in many ways right, are unseen. You've said the hardest part of this journey is convincing the rest of the world that the experience of Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities in healthcare is one that is unjust. Who is it that you are trying to convince of that? And what does the pushback look like? So there have been so many times where when I go into meetings and I'll talk about my experience. I'll talk about what we're doing at Radical Health. And the first question I'll get is, well, do poor people have cell phones? Will they even use the internet? And, you know, I'm taken aback because I'm like, most folks who are beneath, you know, poverty line, their primary access to the internet is through a cell phone. I'll kind of like cast it as like privilege But to experience the world as a Black person is so hard. And to do that in healthcare, I talk a lot about like Serena Williams. And if you haven't checked out her documentary on HBO, her experiences, she was pregnant and had like a, a blood clot 
Serena Williams, the GOAT. Um, but her doctors did not listen to her. And it took a lot of effort on her part to convince folks that she wasn't well. And that part happens every day. I think people are starting to understand that the world is a little bit more complicated. I think what folks and what I do a lot of convincing towards are like, there are real barriers in place across the board. So whether it's pre-approvals from your insurance company before you can get the medication that you might need or before you can get a procedure, whether it's the phone when you call and to get an appointment and you're on that phone tree, like press one for this, press two for that. That in and of itself is one huge barrier for people. This system that we're all operating in, like it doesn't even work for you. You Maybe you might feel a little bit of it, but like I need you to see kind of this like matrix moment, see, you know, blue pill, like it is so complicated and it doesn't really have to be that way. Right. And it becomes more complicated the more marginalized identities that you encompass, right? So we've talked a little bit about race. Um, You can talk about gender. You often talk about one's veteran status being LGBTQ, whether or not you are undocumented. And so the more of these identities that you are walking into a room with, showing up in a room with, the more complicated this all becomes. Definitely. I just did like a, a session and we were asking like, you know, what do you wish your doctor knew about you? Someone wrote in and they said, you know, I'm adopted. So when you ask me my family history, that's not applicable. And I can't answer that. And in fact, it's triggering for me. Every time I go to a new doctor or every time I come in, you know, what's your family history? I don't know it. And so those identities, the more you pile on, the more you see just how hard. I don't have a better word for this, but like, it is like, I can't even call it a challenge, honestly. I mean, and this is where it comes to like your health, like your life, your quality of life. Like this is the thing that we all, most folks value over everything, right? Like it is how we are here and the quality of how we're here. And if what we have in place in this country, in the U.S. (laughs) doesn't support that, it is unjust. In so many ways, it is like a violation of like our human rights to be well, to be together and to be taken care of. And then for you, how does that show up for you as a leader, all of the different pieces of your own identity? I am constantly growing and evolving. I didn't have a quote unquote real job as a waitress. That was very much probably one of the hardest jobs I've ever had in my life. But I have to challenge a lot of my own beliefs to show up in this world being a Black Latina. I don't have the background or the pedigree. I don't have the the parents or the family with a lot of money. Like, And in fact, I am it for a lot of the folks in my family. Like I have a, a kid. So like, this is, I have to make it. Like, I don't really have another choice. I have to go into a lot of spaces that weren't created for me, that I don't think ever, ever even anticipated I'd be there. And I have to show up. I often say like, I stand on the shoulders of my ancestors. So all the folks who made it possible for me to even be here on this podcast with you to be a CEO, I stand on those shoulders. But then I'm also like trying to break down all these walls because there's no way that I could be the only Afro-Latina CEO in health tech. We need more folks. And so all of these things, this intersectionality, who I am, how I am, where I come from, it really plays a role in like 
how I care for myself, but also like how I'm changing things and why I'm doing my best to like make this, this can't be as hard for the next person. And I cannot be, I don't ever want to be the only person ever again. You said something that really resonated with me. I think it's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners, which is I had to learn to play a game where the rules were never explained to me. How did that show up for you? How does that show up for you? I mean, it happened early on. In high school, I had like a, a co-op job where I went to high school on week and went to work in corporate for another week. And I didn't know this, but like I showed up and it was like an investment company. After a few weeks, they pulled me aside and they were like, hey, like you can't show up here dressed the way you're dressed. And it was, I was like, wait, what? Like, I mean, and it was not anything like, you know, a skirt and a, a lot of colors. And I just couldn't wrap my head around, like, I don't know what you're saying. Like, it was nothing indecent, nothing that was inappropriate. But basically, I kind of showed up as my high school self, right? And I had these pair of, like, red pants that I loved. Have you ever read Tressie McMillan Cotton? Your, like, interests overlap a lot. She wrote this book, Thick. Tressie talks about even just the difference of understanding under a blazer, the difference between wearing a cotton tank top and wearing a camisole. Yes. And like understanding linguistically that those are different things and made of different materials and they signify different levels of formality. Yeah. If you don't have someone in your family who's gone into a corporate office, you don't know that. Right. I did not know any of those things. And so I learned along the way, my first business trip, I didn't know that you have to bring your own credit card. Even though your company is paying for everything, you have to have a credit card so that any incidentals at the hotel is covered. I was like, okay, it's my first business trip. Like here I am. And they're like, well, where's your credit card? I'm like, well, I don't, I don't have one. And they're like, well, you need one. And I was like, and I had arrived at like midnight. So they had to call the office, call my boss, figure all these things out. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, Nobody told me this. Nobody told me. And we're also working within a system where there's a supposition that you would have a credit card. Yeah. Yeah. It worked out. I was mortified. You better believe that like I got up to my room and got a credit card. Here's my final question, which is this equitable healthcare system that you imagine, what does it look like? So I have a really great friend, Natalie Molina Nino. Natalie is one of our all-time favorite podcast guests. One of the most practical and useful. Isn't she the best? If you want someone to cut through the BS, like my first call. I think Natalie deserves all her flowers for the way that she's guided me and taught me and continues to. But what she says about equity is that in many ways it's lazy. um, And that if we're just looking to be equitable in the U.S. It's like a subpar standard, right? Like compared to excellence. And in her brilliance has forced me to think about, do we want equity or do we want excellence? And when I think about the future of healthcare, I have to like second her and say, equity is not enough. We need excellence. And the way that that looks in the community's model is that, I mean, one, for people who have often been the cornerstone, the most impacted, the most, I mean, when we look at COVID, who's been impacted the most? We have black, brown, immigrant. We talked about those intersectionalities, right? These are folks who should be at the forefront in leading the future of care. 
they really need to be at the center because no one else knows the struggle or the challenges like they do. And then when we take that a step further, my vision is that, yeah, like in a world where also tech and health tech was never created for black, brown, immigrant people, that we start to see this analog and tech coming together to meet our people, our communities, our lived experiences where they are. I'm tired of saying, you know, you want this, you have to achieve, right? My whole life was like, you want to make it, you got to do all the things, work hard, go hard, meet me over here, jump into this lane. I'm imagining the future of healthcare and health where it is grounded and rooted where people are. It's not a feat to get to, it's not a challenge, it's not all the things that make it hard, but it is in our culture, it is in community. Evelise, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been incredible. Thanks for listening. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lentigua Williams and me, Alicia Menendez. Sarah McClure and Paulina Velasco are our senior producers. Our lead producer is Cedric Wilson. Kojin Tashiro is our associate sound designer. Stephen Colon makes this episode. Manuela Bedoya is our social media editor and at OpsLead. We love hearing from you. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Slide into our DMs on Instagram or tweet us at Latina to Latina. Remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, wherever you're listening right now. Remember, every time you share the podcast or you leave a review, you help us to grow as a community. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.